Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Scott improves every song ever. These are the wise words of my friend and cult author Jeff Burke, and no person better embodies the spirit of this quote than Jeremy Hunter, our guest today on In Defense of Ska. Most people know Jeremy for their wildly successful YouTube channel, Ska-Tune Network, where they take non-Ska songs and spin them into Ska gold, proving Jeff right 100% of the time. But Jeremy also plays trombone in We Are The Union, is a talented singer-songwriter via their project Jer, and is a fervent ska defender. They are also a leading voice in today's current ska resurgence. I can't even remember my introduction to Jer, mm-hmm. but they were definitely the, the first person that got me excited about ska again. I remember when they posted that first cover and when they decided that they were going to go all in on music. It was really inspiring to me that somebody was doing that in this day and age and that they were doing it with ska being the focus. Yeah, I remember meeting Jer in late 2018. I had actually originally had decided that I wanted to have a chapter about Brent from We Are The Union, their drummer. And I was just hearing about Scott Toon Network as we were setting that up and super into it and found out that Jeremy was also in We Are The Union. And I was like, we should do both. And Jeremy was into it. So we did an interview, the three of us, and it, I think it turned into a really good chapter. Yeah. Where was that show? It was in Reno. Uh, I can't remember the name of the venue, but they were opening for Real Big Fish. So it was a, it was a real, because it's when they were touring with Real Big Fish. So it was a pretty good size audience. I just remember you sending me a picture of the three of you together and being so bummed out that I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, good stuff. I feel like that was just before Jeremy became a big deal. I think they were a big deal within the ska community, but then after that they started to get outside of ska and and people were starting to talk about ska to network. Yeah. Where does ska begin for you? Definitely began with the Digimon movie. I feel like anyone who is in their mid to late 20s, I feel like you've most likely found ska either through the Digimon movie or through Tony Hawk. Tony Hawk was maybe if I was two years older, I probably would have played that game, but I didn't have a PS1. Pretty sure it was for the PlayStation 1, was it? I feel like it was PlayStation 2. I played it mostly on on the Nintendo 64, I think. 
Oh, okay. I had a 64. I didn't know it was on the 64 as well. That was my first system, but we only had like three games uh, for it or four games because my parents were like, y'all are like two. You don't need to get that many games. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I found through the Digimon movie, you know, I got to that age in like sixth or seventh grade where I started to realize I'm a person and I, I should have interests. You know, like all my friends started listening to music. So I was like, what music do I like? And I was thinking about it and like, well, I remember the Digimon movie having a great soundtrack. So I like, I went on to Google and I searched the Digimon movie like soundtrack and then I found the songs and I went onto LimeWire and you know downloaded as many of them as I could find a lot of those bands on that soundtrack I think were made for the movie like they're not real bands because I can't find any other any other information about their existence aside from that movie but less than Jake and the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones were both on that soundtrack and I remember finding so many of their songs on LimeWire back in the day and I was just like at the time I didn't know it was a genre I was just like oh cool rock with horns that's really rhythmic I really like all of these things if only it was a genre and then one day I accidentally downloaded a Real Big Fish song because it was titled as a less than Jake song because that's how LimeWire rolled back then and then when I found out Real Big Fish was a band I was like oh there's more and that's when I was like I need to find more of this mystery music and then the rest was history I don't know how far ahead this is for you, but I remember we talked about the talent farm as being the sort of important part of your early years with ska and, and um, DIY music and stuff. Yeah. How do we get to talent farm and, and tell us a little bit more about talent farm? Yeah. So like, like I said, for a while, less than Jake was probably the only, like the boss tones were there. I don't know why I didn't listen to the boss tones as much as less than Jake, but less than Jake was like the band that I was listening to for a long time. They're the only ska band that I knew. And so in my ninth Ninth grade year, I went to see them live at a comic book convention in South Florida called Supercon. And at that show, there were some local ska bands opening. Some of them I actually still are friends with and collaborate with. We met at that show um, and shows around that time. And for a while, I didn't. I heard about the Talent Farm. I had a lot of friends who were into pop punk, metalcore emo all of these genres that were at the talent farm because ska shows didn't really happen there and my friends would invite me and i'd be like let me know when there's a ska show and i'll go i didn't really care to go to any other shows unless it was ska, which is so funny because now i absolutely love and kick myself in the butt for for missing out on so many great bands back then but yeah eventually ska bands started playing the talent farm and after i went to a few like local house shows and stuff like that i went to the talent farm to go see one of my friends bands who was a ska band and they were playing a mixed genre show and that was like my introduction to like local music and punk in general because that show had like a punk rock band a hardcore band metal all of the genres you could think about that were popular around that time that show had it all that was definitely my introduction and from there i was going to shows left and right ska or not and when i started booking shows myself because the ska shows like you know it did the thing that a lot of scenes especially made up of high schoolers do everyone graduates high school and moves away and goes to college and bands break up and no one was carrying that torch and i was someone who was like i don't want this to die i just got into it like this year and everyone graduated and moved away and shows stopped happening so i was like i'm gonna form my own band and book my own shows because nobody else is booking shows right now like it was a year where i didn't go to a ska show and when you're like in high school a year is a very long time i feel like we all can speak now a year is a long time to go without shows too (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know especially when like you just get the taste of it and then it's gone so i was like dang i need to do this myself because no one else is doing it so so yeah i started booking shows and that was definitely integral to me you know that's how i met brent That's how I eventually connected with We Are The Union and by proxy eventually connected with like, you know, y'all and created the Scouts United platform. It is all rooted back to my time I spent booking and eventually working at the talent farm. Were you already playing music when you when you started going to shows and and booking shows? Were you already playing an instrument? 
so it kind of came with it in a way like i was i was a band kid so i was playing trumpet and that was another reason why i gravitated towards ska music was like being a band kid i love jazz music and i loved classical but i also growing up just loved rock music and i attribute that to like i look back at the video games i played like sonic video games always have punk rock in the music and then the tv shows i watched you know like i feel like in the early 2000s you couldn't watch a single tv show without having the battle of the bands episode like you know they form a band out of nowhere and then someone steals their song at the talent show i always loved that stuff and like you know i was like i always wanted to form a band when i got to high school i didn't even listen to any music but i wanted to form a band you know i had already started learning bass because i was my logic which i was totally right about this my logic was everyone plays guitar but it's hard finding a good basis so if i learn bass i'll definitely join a band which my first band I did play bass in. So I had already kind of taught myself a few songs on bass and owned a bass and played trumpet. So I was already playing and I took piano lessons. I was already at three instruments down by the time I got into high school and discovered shows and going to shows and things like that. What was the talent farm? Describe the space and and what it was normally. Oh, so the talent farm. So this was like the man who started it. His name's Kevin Burns. And he started it in 2003, I believe, as a recording studio specifically to record. So it was a very big open space in general. There was a space where a full band can rehearse, set up the way they would at a show. And then there were multiple like rooms that served as recording booths. And then there was one like booth in the center. So when you walked in to your right, there was like a lobby area. That's typically where bands would set up merch. And then it looked like one room in the front and then two hallways that led to the big back room. And in the middle, that's where like the sound booth was. So working there was dope because, you know, if you didn't like the bands that were playing, you can be in the sound booth and just mute the monitors and you're, you know, sound free. Uh, it was pretty sick. <laughs> but yeah, so it kind of had that center sound booth area. Then the main stage was like further away from the door at the sound booth. And then you had four rooms that were the recording like booths. And those served as the green room. So there's actually four green rooms, which for a DIY venue, like most venues can barely have one green room. For a DIY venue to have four, that was pretty dope. Yeah, so that was pretty much the space. And it was about a 250 cap venue. Legally, definitely could not fit that many people. That's kind of what got it finally shut. Like the landlord hated him. And I feel like inevitably would have broke his lease for something. But he was there for so long. He was there for 11 years. And eventually he got him technically because there was no way to access the garage door the legal cap was 14 people which obviously way more people could fit in there and if a fire happened something with the way the drywall was set up or the you know it being zoned as industrial because it was technically a warehouse um you know the legal cap was 14 people so like that's inevitably what got it shut down i love the story you told me um about the song damn it being banned from the talent farm i want to hear more about that <laughs> yeah so it wasn't necessarily banned from the talent farm first day it was damn it's in blink 182 is just one of those you know a lot of people's gateway into alternative music at this point is blink 182 or green day or you know my chemical romance or those alternative punk rock bands that hit the radio and damn it is a very easy song to play i think they wrote that song in like five minutes before recording it and it popped off you know it's super catchy super easy to play so a lot of bands you know when they're trying to figure out their set they're like let's cover damn it you know it's super easy let's figure it out you know everyone knows the lyrics even if you've never heard the song i have friends who are normies that don't listen to punk but they know the lyrics to that song it's super easy to cover and and mistakenly one day one tragic ska show <laughs> <laughs> there were six bands playing this show and the first band playing the show you know they did their set and they're like thank you we're x y and z i forgot the name of the band and then they played damn it and then the second band playing the show was like 
well, you know, we only have three songs in a cover, and we can't just cut the cover because the first band did it. So we're just going to do it again. Here's Damn It. <laughs> <laughs> and so then the third band was like, our version's a ska version. It's different. Here's Damn It. And so the fourth band at that point, they didn't even plan on covering it, but they were like, we we just can't break the hype at this point. Let's play Damn It. So at that point, everyone was like, no, not again. And they just on stage figured out how to play Damn It. <laughs> <laughs> and then the fifth band didn't play damn it the sixth band i think sound checked with damn it i think there were seven bands on the show and then the last band they were literally on stage like i'm so sorry i'm so sorry but we also only have three songs we cannot cut this from our set so that day just every band played damn it to the point where the people at the shows were just like if this happens again we're just gonna not go to ska shows anymore and, and so and so it became a running joke where like instead of saying play Freebird, it was play damn it you know that was the running joke you've since covered it right i actually at that show swore covering damn it ever after that show we, we used to have themed shows at the talent farm which was really fun the ska shows always had a theme and we had a 60s show called uh wood ska so as you know in the 1960s there was a bunch of protests for so many reasons i protested covering damn it <laughs> <laughs> i made a shirt for that show i made a whole costume i had an afro wig and like all of this stuff it was ridiculous made i took a white a blank white t-shirt and i used duct tape to put the x like you know like the circle with the cross through it and then i duct taped the words end the damn it and i spray painted over that so i made like a diy shirt that protested covering damn it at that show and so people spitefully of course covered damn it at the show <laughs> and were you right in the middle of the pit like protesting Oh, so yeah, I, so I had like sit-ins. Whenever someone played Damn It, I would sit down in the middle of the pit and refuse to move until the cover was over. Amazing. Years later with Scott 2 Network, the decision to cover Damn It, was it completely related to this history you had with it? Or was it just a natural song that you probably would have covered anyways? I think naturally I would have covered it anyway. So actually the way that happened, very strikingly similar to the way Blink-182 wrote the song. I was leaving to teach because I, you know, I do marching band and I teach drum corps and I was leaving to teach for 14 weeks. I meant to backpile more covers, but back then I just didn't have a flow the way I do now. And I ran out of time and I was like, I need to cover something that I can do a cover in three hours because I literally only have three hours before I leave for the airport. And so I covered Damn It. I finished it in two and a half hours from like opening the project to like exporting the video. It was so fast. I did everything in one take i mean like when you listen to like that original you can definitely tell i did everything in one take there's so many mistakes you know it added to the charm and like i was like whatever you know and i put it up and they got like two million views on facebook and like my channel blew up and like forty thousand subscribers that week so i was like all right cool damn it like you know <laughs> <laughs> when you interviewed um bad operation for their album release i remember something that you said about how you know you, your introduction to ska was you know the mainstream stuff which we already talked about and then you said that community records was sort of like your introduction to the world outside of radio ska but i'd like to hear about that so how did you get in tune with this scene and this music i and this is like obviously i've talked with you know we are the union obviously and you know brand people who are like older but not the Gen X, I guess millennials is the word I'm trying to say. The millennials of Scott, because like aside from Jeff Rosenstock, there's not really any millennials that have made a huge name for themselves in Scott, unless you count like the Interrupters, which was very recent. But so there's so many bands during the 2000s, the millennials, they were the ones who were in the 20s during that time. And they were touring and creating bands like Bad Operation included as, you know, Stuck Lucky, 
Flaming Tsunamis, and a lot of those bands had a huge influence on South Florida. Why? I'm not entirely sure. Fatter Than Albert, that's the other name I was thinking of. Fatter Than Albert, I remember, used to go down to what I was told. I never saw them, but... But yeah, Stuck Lucky and Fatter Than Albert would tour to South Florida and play like local shows down there a lot. And for the longest time, I was like, why do South Florida bands have this distinct sound? And then I had the realization, they all just sound like Fatter Than Albert and, and Stuck Lucky. From like 2007 to 2013, every band sounded like that. And then there was one band that sounded like We Are The Union. You know, those the, the millennials that were like lost, quote unquote, you know, the bands that never got that recognition in the 2000s. They had a lasting effect in the South Florida scene. So many bands formed and for the longest time kind of had that inspiration. I remember having a friend who actually traced back the Flaming Tsunamis and what happened there. Someone who was good friends with the band basically got a bunch of their CDs and then at Warp Tour 2007 went out after I think Less Than Jake Arubic, one of those bands, Less Than Jake Arubic Fish, after their set was just handing Flaming Tsunami CDs. You like Ska? Check this out. You like Ska? Check this out. I th- I, it might have been a community record sampler, honestly, because I remember talking to two different people who said that they got a CD of the that had the Flaming Tsunamis on it. At Warp Tour, uh, someone just handed it to them saying, if you like Ska, check this out. That's how like the Flaming Tsunamis inspiration spread. And it's so funny because I was talking to D-Ray and D-Ray was like, I didn't even know people knew about the Flaming Tsunamis. And I was like, that was like the band people talked about in South Florida. But it goes to show how important that stuff is when people like do that legwork. Uh, I used to book ska shows a lot. And when Streetlight Manifesto did their reunion show in West Palm Beach, I was booking ska prom. Literally went to Office Depot, printed 250 basically prom invitations, and then hand folded them, put them inside 250 envelopes and wrote in cursive, you're invited, and went and handed that to people at this Streetlight Manifesto show in West Palm Beach. And it was like, if you brought the invitation, you got $2 off admission, and we got back 20 invitations. So it's like 20 people went to that show because of that work. But part of that is because you put that work in to organically reach those people and you see that return. So like, sorry that derailed a little bit, but that's kind of like why I'm like, I respond to the comments. So people comment like, where can I find Scott? As, as part of me hates having to answer the same thing over and over again, part of me knows that you see that payback over time when you do that. But I think it's because those bands like Stuck Lucky and the Flaming Tsunamis and Fatter Than Albert, they were the bands during that era, that small late 2000s era that was like, they were doing the DIY grind and touring so much, especially to Florida and Florida already being such a strong scene, you know, without them, I, I don't think I would have necessarily gotten as deep into ska because like I said, I loved the, you know, like Real Big Fish and Less Than Jake. And when I was in ninth grade, I found out about Streetlight Manifesto through band kids and then the Aquabats as well through band kids. But then there was like one band kid. He was like, you need to check out Asian Man Records and Community Records. He like put me on those two. And then when I started going to shows, Community Records, that name kept popping up again and again. And people kept saying those same bands. So in my little freshman mind, Fatter Than Albert, and you know skank and pickle were equally as in link 82 adam in link 80 was another band that i found out very early on from like band kids in high school it's like those names were all introduced to me and that was the stuff that eventually pulled me in to like really dive deep into the genre of ska you know i mean you know there's only so many of those mainstream bands and for us it was definitely asian man bands that mattered way more than like the mainstream bands yeah i feel like the era that we grew up in any of the bands that were getting played on the radio, no matter how good they were, they immediately were getting dismissed by by anyone who was into the underground scene just because of that like punk rock ethos. Like I 
I have to admit, I'd never listened to dance hall crashers for years just because so many of my peers were like, oh, they're on a major, like disregard that. And which is stupid, but it's, that was just the mentality when we were growing up. I feel like that mentality is definitely, I mean, obviously I think you wrote a whole book about it or something, but like (laughs) what, what happened to ska basically? Like, and I feel like that mentality is a big part of it. That goes for a lot of punk genres in general, like punk that had that mentality, you, you look at it and that's the punk that didn't survive. You can laugh off, you know, Green Day all you want, but Everyone will know that band forever. They're going down in history up there with ACDC. And I feel like 10 years ago, that sounded like a big phrase to say. But my students listen to Green Day and Blink-182 and My Chemical Romance, but they don't listen to like ACDC or Metallica. Not as many of them, at least. So like, I feel like that that ignorance to not want to, you know, consider anything that was bigger is kind of one of those things that in hindsight, it's like, yeah, where did that get you? It was definitely a huge, huge part of the the mindset. I mean, the whole thing at Gilman at the time was like banning any band that would sign to a major. And that included Epitaph, who were like technically not a major, but kind of a major. I remember literally being angry when No Doubt was on the radio. <laughs> and I love I loved No Doubt. I was a big fan of their first album. Yeah, but for us, they were they were a local underground band. When I went to grad night for senior year at Disneyland, there were all these cover bands playing all over Disneyland. And then I came around the corner and there was a band playing a No Doubt song. And I was like, there's a No Doubt cover band here? They're not that big yet. It was just straight up No Doubt because they're from down there. <laughs> That's pretty dope, honestly. I feel like my grad night experience was so different than that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Pitbull was playing. (laughs) Even though I know it's not probably as glamorized as I think in my mind, I still look back to that and I'm like, damn, it must have been so dope to grow up in a time where like you can see bands playing and people actually thought that shit was cool. Oh gosh, I'm so envious of that. But also like whatever, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's fucking high school. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I want to hear about you joining We There the Union and the whole story behind that. But what kind of what leads up to that? What are you doing before that? Are you are you playing in different bands? So uh, there's a very important piece of history in Scotsu Network that I don't talk about as much as I think I should, especially given what I normally talk about. It's when I quit Ska. I might have talked it to you. I quit Ska for two years, and there's a two year period where I actually did not play Ska at all. So I worked at the Talent Farm 2012 to 2014, and then 2014 to 2016 was kind of a free-for-all. It was very much like Talent Farm got shut down. Broward County was in a struggle mode because everyone was trying to find the next big venue. And all of these random bars started hosting shows to exploit the show culture. And then like 
it was it was a mess. It was like eight venues that were all shitty instead of one good venue that all eventually closed down or just stopped booking shows. But during that time, I was booking ska shows just around in general and trying to find like spaces in Miami to book and like and the Broward scene kind of fell apart. Like the ska scene fell apart because of the town farm closing which was a shame, but there were still ska bands in Miami. So I started booking Miami ska bands as much as I could. And they just gave me a headache. I remember this one specific, I'm not going to name names of these bands because I don't want to deal with that. But (laughs) there was this one specific band that they were basically saying, because I'm from the suburbs, I've never experienced racism. And I was like, that's just not how racism works. And then this person starts like saying the N word. And I was like, you should like not say the N word or like say that towards me, like at all. He was like, no, I'm not calling you that. But like, and then it continues to say the N word. And then I think at some point I called them a knockoff rancid. And then the basis of another ska band was like, whoa, whoa, insulting a man's band. Are you serious? And I was like, so this guy just said the N word a bunch and you said nothing. But then I call his band great value rancid. And suddenly, like, the entire Miami ska scene's hopping on me as if I did something. That, at that point, I'd already experienced a lot of microaggressions at, like within ska shows, mostly in, my, mostly in Miami. In fact, exclusively in Miami. To the point where I was like, I hate this genre. And then I just quit ska. Like, I was like, every band I love died. It seems like over the last few years, like, Goldfinger became more active. And, like, at the time, it was literally, like, Real Big Fish was touring. Streetlight was touring. Less Than Jake was touring. Nobody else was active at all, you know? 2014, like the mid-2010s decade, no one was playing ska at the time. So I was like into other genres of DIY and punk. So I was like, I don't want to be in this genre of like, there's like three bands that I like that are touring. And then the rest of it is like all of these smaller local bands like that are just acting terrible and being terrible. Like, so I kind of quit ska a little bit and like was diving more into emo and pop punk and hardcore and other genres and booking and like I was like playing in bands I, tr- I tried forming so many like ska adjacent you know like ska pop punk or ska core bands I tried forming like three ska core bands during that time and like just no one wanted to play any form of ska so like I mean we all know that struggle so like I wasn't really active in ska but uh there were a few bands that you know obviously I knew Brent the the unnamed band the band I will not name that Brent was playing with I was playing shows with them a little bit and uh, I did a tour with them as well I was just, you know, hopping on stage, playing trombone, recording with random bands here. Like, Stop the Presses was a dope band. The only band from Miami that I honestly still love and loved throughout that whole time. I recorded trombone for them. And then my friend Glenn, he played in a band called Bad Year. And they were a pop punk band. And they were just like, do you want to record trombone on a song? Absolutely. And it just sounded like We Are The Union. You know, like the end of that song just sounded like a We Are The Union song. And at that point, I was friends with Reed on Facebook. As well, Glenn was also friends with Reed. And like, I think Reed had just like, We're the Union broke up. Reed just moved out to California and wasn't really doing music. You know, like We're the Union was very much back burner at that point. At that point, they're probably already on the, the plan to break up. They were, they had their last few tours booked and then Fest uh, 14 was booked. Uh, this is such a funny story. Uh, my friend James uh, from the Tampa scene, Tampa had a big ska and pop punk scene that idolized We're the Union. And kept saying, like, the most ridiculous ridiculous things to read. Like, Reed, do a full U.S. tour. And Reed's like, no. It's like, Reed, play a Great Leaps Forward tour. And Reed's like, hell no. It's like, Reed, let Jeremy play trombone for We Are The Union. And Reed was like, well, actually, we need a trombone player. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, Reed checked out my, like, social medias. At that point, I think I posted, like, a couple videos on Instagram of me just, like, ripping random ska songs. And there was a few We Are The Union songs mixed in. And so Reed like messaged me, like, hey, do you want to play a trombone at Fest? And I was like, uh, absolutely. Semi-starstruck because they were like my favorite band in high school. 
And so I played the set and it was dope and it was a lot of fun and people popped off and like, you know, where the unit got a lot of support at that show. And I think it's because they went like a year without a trombone player. So people were really bummed to see them without a trombone player to like kind of have that experience of like a horn section in their band again. I think less than Jake asked where the unit to open one of their shows early next year. And then Reed was like, would you be down to fly to Detroit to play this show? And at that point, it kind of became like, it was unclear if where the union was an active band again. I was kind of just filling in for them for shows. But after Brent joined, it kind of became a, this band is back. You know, like at that point, we were like random drummers are filling in for a couple shows. But then Brent kind of stepped in and like encouraged Reed to really start playing more. That was the saga of me joining. And so this is all before Scott Tune Network. I mean, that comes like another, that comes like two years later, right? Actually, no, it was like a year later. I mean, it didn't pop off till like two years later. Fest 14 was in 2015 because Fest has the, the number is always off by a year. But Fest 14 was 2015. And then I started Scott Tune Network December 25th, 2016. But it didn't take off until April 2018. So yeah, it was a long ways before Scott 2 Network was a thing. Yeah, so your first song was Fully Snobby Dodd. Was that called Scott 2 Network? So I just uploaded it to Facebook, just on my personal Facebook. I made a Facebook status being like, if I get one like on this status, I'll make a, a shitty Scott cover of a Christmas song. And then I liked the status myself. And then I commented immediately after okay, fine, I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's pretty much how that happened. You know, I started to do covers because I posted that to Facebook and it got like a quarter million views. And I was like, wow, that sounded terrible on purpose. So if I actually like put a little bit of effort, I could probably make a cover sound terrible by accident, but less terrible and people will like it. Like it was like four covers in a row just reached incredible lengths like i did the I forgot the name of the song the bam 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 you know like the oh the new year song yeah yeah yes yeah yeah i did that on new year's and it popped off again and then i did a cover of like an emo but it was the first emo cover i did it was the world is a beautiful place and they shared it on their social medias and that popped off and then i did a steven universe cover and then one of the head storyboard artists shared it on his tumblr and that popped off and i was like this is like a brand like people clearly dig this and I was still working full time. I was a cook, not a cook. I was a server and I eventually became a cook at a restaurant. And I couldn't dedicate solely to Scott2 Network yet because there just wasn't money in it. But I was doing covers at least like one a month, pretty semi-consistently. I came up with a brand because I already had that username for such a long time. So it was super easy coming up with the branding and making the channel. From there, you know, it popped off as we all know to where it is now. So you brought up a restaurant that you worked at. Can we talk about that restaurant a little bit? This was not the restaurant you're thinking, but the first restaurant I worked at was, I was working at the Talent Farm and Waffle House at the same time. So the restaurant I was working at when Scott's Network started was called Russo's Coal Fire Italian Kitchen, which was, in case you couldn't tell just by the title alone, a little more upscale than Waffle House. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually, I want to talk about Waffle House though, because you definitely credit Waffle House as being a catalyst for making you go vegan. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Back when I was touring, Waffle House was a staple because you could eat there super, super cheaply. And there were also like weird hacks. Like we found out that you could order toast and you could just keep asking for toast and they wouldn't bill you for more toast. So we would just live off of toast. (laughs) Really? (laughs) You would need a really like the worst kind of waffle house server to actually charge you because i think they like fixed that but when i was working there i just gave out free food as much as i possibly could because when you sign like the thing to work there they take three dollars out of every shift you work in exchange you can eat as much free food as long as it's not like steak 
or the pork chops or like any of the major meats. But, you know, that money adds up. I, I checked my pay stub at the end of 2014 and they had taken out like $2,000. So I was like, oh, hell no. I'm going to give away $2,000 worth of food. So that's what I did. I just gave out as much free food as possible. <laughs> like no one working there really cared, you know, like even the managers are like, whatever. You have to have the worst server to charge you for toast. You know, they get that shit at like a penny a loaf. Right. What I want to ask from a touring old guy, touring guy standpoint <laughs> Is there anything safe to eat at Waffle House? Ooh, I mean, I still eat the hash browns. You know, I've obviously gone to Waffle House for hangs. And like, don't get me wrong, as dangerous and as avoidable, I think that place needs to be. And like how much you should not go there uh, from a personal health standpoint. I will still go to Waffle House and order hash browns. That's just the risk. I like living on the edge sometimes. I mean, at the end of the day, I get it. I get it. And as much as I hated working there, um, I also loved working there. Part of my hate working there was more from management and like shitty coworkers. But the actual atmosphere and the restaurant itself, I, I love the Waffle House, the chaotic nature alone. <laughs> like, you know, like you could have the worst night ever, but you have a damn story to tell after that night. And like, and you make money regardless. You can like have the worst night ever and you still walk out $200 in your pocket, you know? So like, it was a shitty job, but the money was good. And it was at times a lot of fun. If you had a good staff, it was a really fun job. That's the thing that sucked is like for four months, we had a really dope, like the managers were really cool. Everyone I worked with did their job. And then we got a new regional manager who came in and messed up everybody's hours and then hired like 10 people who anyone could tell you, you shouldn't have hired them. Like, I know we're like always short staff, but come on, like, like three of them off, like threatened to shoot up the place. And like some of them were violent at work and they wouldn't fire them. Like this person's picking up a knife and threatening you fire them. Like, but they wouldn't, the management is what messed me up. But do you want me to tell my stories about why you shouldn't eat there? Because I don't want to like, I don't want to ruin Waffle House forever for you, but... My main thing was if there was just anything people should steer clear of. Because I, I think I remember you telling me about like going in the back and scraping mold off of things. So we there was black mold in that Waffle House. And apparently the managers had known about... Which black mold is serious. That's serious. That yeah. You can die from that. Um, And the managers had known about it for over... Like before I worked there. And I worked there for two years. So like they knew about it for a while. And like coworkers would... Like especially the ones that worked a lot would randomly just like get really sick, have migraines all the time. And like over time, a cook had to actually get hospitalized because of the black mold. It was that hospitaliz hospitalization that they linked to that black mold that finally made the managers do something about it. This was after I, I, right after I quit, this happened. My friend was working there. They ripped out the ceiling in the back room, but they didn't close. So they were ripping out black mold from the ceiling while prepping food in the back which is a big no-no. You should have closed. Waffle House would be fine being you're a multi-billion dollar corporation whose stock has not gone down in 40 years. You will be fine if you close for four hours to rip out some black mold, you know, or whatever, like close on a slow day, do, some, do something. But no, they, they urged the prep cook to keep prepping. And my friend who was a server, she watched black mold just fall into the hash browns and they would just pick out whatever little roof things that fell out and threw it. And my friend threw away all the hash browns. She was like, no, like, I'm not going to do that. And she threw out all the hash browns and they found out it was her and they fired her. Whoa. Anyway, something else. She got reprimanded for it anyway. But yeah, it's just, it's just stuff like that where I'm just like, that wasn't the, the, the store manager's decision. That wasn't the district manager's decision. That wasn't the, the area manager. I was the regional manager. That person is one step away from corporate. He has, influence over every waffle house orlando and south which is like 50 stores you know that's like a lot of big decisions that could risk people's lives 
in the hand of somebody who has that much power in the company. You know, like if he's doing stuff like that and he's like one quarter away from a promotion into corporate, I can't imagine what decisions they're making to save money at that level. You know, like there was a period where the freezer had went out for 30 hours and uh, the head cooks were told by that same manager, keep selling it till someone says something. And we were selling rotten meat for months. None of the cooks said anything because they didn't they didn't want to lose their job, which like I don't really fault the cooks. People don't know this, but the reason why they they call the orders is Waffle House started in the South and they hired a lot of black cooks who, you know, weren't, they couldn't read or whatever. They, they basically preyed on people who were impoverished who couldn't read. So they yelled the orders at them and they kind of chokehold poor people into keeping their jobs. And by doing that, they can get away with shit like that. Like people don't talk about that. And like, that's very much like obviously an ethical as well as health thing of why I kind of avoid Waffle House as much as I could. That being said, if it's like 3 a.m. and Waffle House is your only goddamn option, I'm not going to shame anybody for eating there. Normally, <laughs> I'm going to be like, you know, like that's the same way as I'm not going to shame those cooks for quitting because like that one cook had like eight kids. And if he lost yeah. that job, you know, that's eight kids that couldn't eat. So like, I'm not going to shame him. I'm going to shame the the manager that makes $250,000 a year. You know, you make a quarter million a year and it's only $6,000 worth of meat. You could have paid for that out of your, if I made that much money, I would just pay the $6,000 and get it replaced from my own paycheck. But I also have a conscience and a soul so like you know corporate managers don't and you know so like that's why i'm like stay clear of that but obviously you know that's like one instance but th- to me it's like those are people that have control over a lot of those stores and you know damn well that he's not the only manager who has that mindset in that company oh for sure i mean maybe it's worse there but i mean i worked at denny's for a long time and they didn't do stuff like that but it was always about the bottom line and it was always about cutting corners and always about trying to just find a way to make a teeny bit more money. Mm-hmm. Jerry, when I was when I was on tour with Link Eighty, I came home um, from tour and I went to Denny's to eat with one of my friends. And Aaron was my server. And the <laughs> only people in the whole Denny's were myself and the friend I was with, Aaron, who was my server, and then the chef in the back was the singer from Flat Planet. Oh my god, that's so funny! I felt like I was trapped in a weird nightmare. Like I was just like, what is going on? The dudes from my favorite ska punk band growing up are now in this Denny's and I'm the only person in here to witness it. I remember you ordered like a uh, loaded fries. So it was like fries with cheese and bacon and whatever. I'm sure. Yeah. That, that sounds like me. And then you go, Aaron, I'll take another one. <laughs> yes. I love that. So are y'all familiar with the Watts you challenge? No. All right. So Aaron, I feel like you will love this based off that story. Watsu flies for everything. And typically we had a lot of shows in 2018 in California. So I had to fly to California quite a bit. And from Fort Lauderdale to LAX or even San Francisco, that's a long flight, you know, especially if you're going against the wind, that's like a six hour flight. I'd always have to drive to the airport, get to the airport. There's nothing vegan in the airport. Shocker. They didn't have a six hour flight. So by the time I land, I'm starving like every time. Whenever I get in the van for Watsu, the first question, I'm like, where are we eating? Like, I don't even say hi. I'm like, where are we going? Where are we eating? Also, hi. And so one day we went to Ike's, you know, beautiful Ike's, love that place, wish it was over here. And I got a, I got a sub or a sandwich, whatever. I downed it so fast. And then I was like, does anyone want to split a second sandwich? I'm still hungry. And everyone else was like, nah, we, uh, I'm full. And I was like, forget all y'all. So I ordered a second sandwich and ate the second sandwich. And so I was like, that's it. That's the Watu challenge. It's like a bang, bang, but you don't have time to digest your food. You just get two entrees. You just eat them back to back. So, so you completed a Watsu challenge. 
100%. I'm down with the watching challenge. <laughs> I love it. Okay, not not to harp too much on Waffle House, but there's one more aspect of Waffle House that I need to talk about with you. Absolutely. What's up? And that's the the jukebox. Oh my goodness. It has all the pop hits of whatever is popular at the time, but then it also has a separate list that doesn't change that is just Waffle House specific songs. Yes. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And I didn't know this at the time because I went through such a big, I don't want to listen to popular music phase of my life. So there's like a lot of big music and that, and like, you know, my parents didn't listen to stuff like the Beatles or like the beach boys. They listened to like funk and soul and R and B and jazz and stuff like that. So there's like a lot of like rock music from the sixties. I'm just not familiar with like, I think I heard my first Beatles song like four years ago or something like that, that like that. I knew it was the Beatles. There's definitely songs I've heard. I'm like, Oh, that's the Beatles. I've heard that my entire lot, you know, like, but you know, I just wasn't familiar. So there's like, I didn't know this, but all of them are parodies of original songs. So that, that makes it even worse. <laughs> They're like weird, 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 weird all songs. But it's like karaoke instrumentals. It's not even like, it doesn't even sound good. Like the way I learned that was uh, someone put $5 in the jukebox and played all of them, which I hated them for that. <laughs> the song Grill Operator came up, which that's what they call their their cooks or grill operators. And it was a parody of Smooth Operator as Grill Operator. And I was like, oh my God, what the fuck am I listening to? There's a song called 844,739 ways to eat a hamburger at Waffle House. That's the full title. <laughs> it has to be a Johnny Cash parody because it sounds like Johnny Cash. Oh my God. It's the most punishing song. And I've played it at so many Waffle House. And I don't remember what I d- did, but I had I had extra money at, at one, one night and I put it on back to back. Like I put in a dollar <laughs> and just for every song you can get, I put that song. It played one and a half times before the waitress went over and unplugged the jukebox. And she said, if you do that again, you're out of here. And I was like, yes, ma'am. I love the energy of Waffle House. Sometimes I debate. I'm like, should I just go get a job at Waffle House? Just for the stories. Because I feel like like working food service sucks. But if you're just doing it for fun, just one day a week, just make some extra money if you want. You know, I feel like that level of stress will make it worth working at Waffle House again. So sometimes I'm like, I just need that energy in my life. I probably won't do that, but like, you know. It's a wonderful idea though. I've thought about that same thing. I used to work at Jamba Juice and I've thought like, what if I just went and got a job at Jamba Juice and just worked there like <laughs> one day a month? <laughs> Against all authority, they're they're from South Florida. And one of the things that they they would lament is that to leave for tour, you have to drive all the way out of Florida before you can start your tour. Yes. and now with we are the union that doesn't seem to be an issue anymore because y'all just fly everywhere yeah i mean like we fly everywhere we play shows you know once like shows come back and scott's who network starts play we had we were booking i remember i was like actually got the the notification on my phone last week of like a calendar that we made for all of the shows in 2020 that scott's who network was supposed to do and so we were like looking at stuff but like yeah once the shows come back we start playing we're not going to be driving anywhere. And like, if we do, it'll probably just be me meeting up. You know, everyone's going to fly into Florida, but you know, you don't have to do that anymore. And I thought that's like an exciting thing to think about. And I feel like the way social media and the internet and travel in general, becoming more accessible and cheaper, uh, depending on where you're looking at anyway, has become, I feel like, especially with how shows come back, the game is going to be a changed forever for traveling and playing shows. And, you know, touring is not as limited as it used to be. Um, even speaking from five to 10 years ago, I never thought I'd be flying out to shows. I, that sounds so dauntingly expensive, but if you know how, what you're doing and doing it right, and you know how to look for flights the correct way, like 
a little trick I do is I always book one-way flights. I never do round trip because I found that you can find a really cheap Delta one-way and American Airlines back, but you will never find a round trip of both. And if you ever use a service like Expedia that will, Expedia will charge you extra. One time I was flying from Austin and for whatever reason, every flight was expensive. It was like for just for a one-way flight, it was like $400. And I was like, why is this so expensive? It was like four weeks before. So it was like enough time for it to be reasonable. Um, But then I looked it up and it was $50 to fly from Austin to Pittsburgh. And then $60 to to fly from Pittsburgh to Orlando because they're all hubs. Like I think Pittsburgh was a hub for, for Delta and JetBlue. And then Austin to Pittsburgh was like JetBlue. And then Delta was both of the uh, Orlando to Pittsburgh. So I was like, I saved hundreds of dollars. I stayed with a friend for a day in Pittsburgh. And then I got to enjoy being in Pittsburgh, which I mean, I don't know if anyone's stoked on going to Pittsburgh or not, but I I was able to see a a drum corps competition and hang out with some friends and eat some dope food and, you know, just take a day to chill. And then I saved literally hundreds of dollars by taking that day to chill. So there's smart ways to fly that I feel like people don't really take advantage of. It's, It's much more accessible than people think. Back in the 90s, too, when we were touring, gas was so cheap compared to now. I mean, I remember when we went through Texas, it was like 99 cents for a gallon of gas. You had to drive. It was so, so, uh, so cheap. And I feel like another another thing people don't realize, too, people ask, like, why don't bands tour as much anymore, especially in the world of ska? And it's like, well, yeah, one, gas was way cheaper, but also everything, like the cost of living was cheaper, but also inflation, $20 and 1990 is $44 in 2015. So it's like, not only was everything so much cheaper, but your dollar was worth twice as much. And when your rent was a fifth of what it is now, on top of the dollar being way more, it's like, of course, everyone could tour because it was so cheap to do so. But now it's like, why doesn't your favorite band tour? Because they literally can't afford it. Gas is so expensive. Getting a car, insurance is so expensive. If your car breaks down, like your band is going to break up because you just, the cost of getting that fixed is your entire band's livelihood. So that's why it's so important for people to support newer bands or even older bands, just support bands in general so they can get going. You know, CD sales and music sales are, are down, but like everyone gets mad at Spotify, but it's like, are you buying music? If you're not buying music, don't get mad at Spotify because yeah, Spotify should pay more. Yeah, record labels should stop taking as much money from their artists. But like at the end of the day, if 20 years ago you were buying a CD a month, but you're not buying that now, where does that money come from? You know, like you can't pay $10 and then listen to a hundred bands and then expect each band to get $10 like that you listen to. That money has to come from somewhere. I feel like that's another thing where it's like right now, now more than ever, it's harder financially for bands to exist 2015 is probably the worst year in my opinion but like because now there's actually people listening to newer bands it's just so important it's much more expensive now than i could ever imagine we'll be right back after this hey everybody it's barry from the what podcast hey it's russ hey it's brian and we are giving away two tickets to bonnaroo 2024 these are ga plus and they include camping russ how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I'm curious your thought on this. Earlier you talked about that sort of 2014-15 time period of there not being 
very many ska bands around. And that's interesting for me too, because I, for some reason, decided to start my book project in 2013. Yeah, there was nobody interested in ska at all. And I was, you know, I would talk to some of these bands and nobody wanted to talk to them. And they were excited that somebody wanted to talk to them. By the time I finished my book, totally different. People are interested in ska, new bands, people are interested in all the old bands. Many of the old bands that are putting out albums now were not around in 2013. Some of them, like Real Big Fish, those guys have never stopped. But other bands definitely reformed more recently. When do you think the tide kind of changed? I think I definitely want to say it was around 2015, 2015 to 2017. That's like kind of when I started to notice it. And I think it's like a number of things. Obviously, as people see more bands like, you know, like the Kill Lincolns, We're the Union, Catfight, like Bad Time bands, but also non-Bad Time, like Half Past Two. The more that they see like bands that you know, more than just a local band. Like there's always been local ska bands, but like anyone can form a band and play three shows a year at a bar and not do anything else. You know, like those bands aren't doing much, but like the bands that are like, we're a real band. We have a package, we have a lineup. We have the intermediate band as like the direct support band on the tour, you know, like those types of bands. The more you start to see that pop up, I feel like people legitimize the genre more. But I think what happened is like, it was just a new generation, you know, like, at this point, like on TikTok, like I think Scott 2 Network is doing super well on TikTok. And like so many people will find my page and they're like, what is ska music? This is awesome. Cause like they're so young, they don't remember when it was not cool to play ska. You know, when I got into shows, it was 2009, 2010. It was the coolest thing to hate ska. Like I remember going to my first non-ska show and I, I was wearing like a Rubik Fish shirt probably, or maybe a Less Than Jake shirt it was a pop punk band playing, but I was skanking. It was me and like a few of my friends and everyone in the room who was wearing their cool merch and gauges and in piercings and tattoos were looking at us like, what the fuck? You're looking like you're having a good time. That's weird. You know, like people were just like, what are you doing? <laughs> there was a period where I was like, I didn't want to move at shows. because I felt so uncomfortable for just literally not looking the part at a show. I stopped moving at shows for a while. And then eventually I said, you know, that's whack. But something I've noticed is like, you know, in the world, especially of pop punk and emo, two things happened. One, a lot of those cool guys from like the early 2000s and like, or like the late 2000s, early 2010s, what the hell are they doing now? A lot of those bands fell off. It proved that much like Ska in the 90s, that cool, tough guy, too cool for Ska, that shit was a phase two. And once that fad died out, being hateful and spiteful as a personality trait, when that started to die out, so did the hate for Ska. And I think it kind of became more of like, hating Ska wasn't as active, but it was still just like culturally accepted as like, you just hate Ska until proven otherwise, you know? But I think what happened too is like, music shifted. I noticed this in emo and in pop punk specifically, where, you know, you start to see emo bands pop up like Prince Daddy and the Hyena. If I did not say they were an emo band, you would think that's a Ska band. And then you see like Illuminati hotties, you know, like another emo band. When you listen to their music, you're like, this is absurd. Like you're listening to this and it's like, it's a joke. Like this type of music is supposed to be super deep and serious, but they're doing the opposite. They're turning heads right now. But when emo bands do it, it's cool. It's cool to be goofy when you're an emo band, but not when you're a ska band. But I feel like the more emo bands and the more pop punk and all of these bands of other DIY genres started to like, not take themselves super seriously. And then all the bands who took themselves way too seriously fell off. I feel like that's where the shift came. And suddenly 
people aren't hating on Ska as much. And now we're at a point where when people hate on Ska, there's like an army being like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> it's cool. I get tagged in posts. And by the time I get there, I see people kind of chime in being like, well, listen, like Ska has a history. You know, people are finally doing the work. And I'm like, oh my God, we're finally at that point. I don't have to say everything anymore. You know, like people are chiming in, but like, it's a slow change. And I feel like, you know, as people who have been playing this music for so long, especially like y'all, you want it to be immediate. I want it to be immediate. I'm like, why haven't people realized how hip sky is like yesterday, you know, but like, it's a slow culture change. And with a new generation coming up, who doesn't understand why sky is hated, nor has just never heard ska before. And they're the ones who starting to take over, you know, like, we're getting to the point where bands that popped off in 2013, they're falling off. People aren't really listening to them anymore. Like they're yesterday's talk. I'm not discrediting those. I still listen to all of those bands. I'm talking about those pop punk bands from 2010. I still listen to them. I still listen to the emo bands from 2013. I love those bands. But when you look at, you know, what's popular right now, like on TikTok or what's trending or who has the most Spotify listeners, it's like, it's these bands of this new generation. I think that's what it is. It's like, we're finally at a point where, the new generation is ready for ska and ready to embrace something new. I, I don't think I've seen this happen before where the new generation of ska bands has taken over or has, I don't know if taken over is the right word, but definitely positioned themselves or made a lot of noise compared to the bands that have been around a while. It feels like I haven't witnessed that happening the way it's been happening the last few years where it's about either the new bands themselves are saying, you know, we're the new bands, we're what's important, or the audience themselves are saying that. Yeah, I think it's because we play off of each other's energy. Like when Brent hit me up being like, we're playing these shows in the in the Northeast, it's going to be We Are The Union, Kill Lincoln, and, and this band called Catbite. It's Tim from the, from the Snails. I had never heard the Snails. So I was like, cool, Brent, I trust you. If you're booking them, I'm sure they're good. And then I saw them and I was like, oh my God, this is so dope. And then like, I started hyping Catbite and vice versa, you know, like I loved hyping them up. And like for the longest time, I felt like there just was a lack of community in ska. As much as it is a community, I feel like talking from the artist and band perspective, you just for a while, I could be wrong about this, but to me, it looks like older ska bands were intimidated by each other and they just stopped touring with each other. Like for the longest time, Less Than Jake didn't take any ska bands on tour with them. Rubik Fit they didn't take bands on tour anymore. Like when I first started going to shows, like it was Rubik Fish versus the Aquabats and then Streetlight Manifesto and Rubik Fish and Less Than Jake and Against All Authority. And slowly over time, you started to see Less Than Jake doing their own tours and Rubik Fish doing their own tours and Streetlight doing their own tours. When local, like smaller bands, like I remember seeing the Toasters and Voodoo Glow Skull, that was a dope tour, but I feel like the shows weren't big enough to financially justify, you know, that, that continuous touring. And that could be it too. You know, when you're two co-headliners, it's not as much money as headlining by yourself. So it could be a financial thing, you know, which, you know, especially in that era, 2007, 2008, the market crashed. Money was not where it was. And even though I don't think that was a, a huge effect on Ska, I think that was enough for people to stop going to shows because people couldn't afford it. I don't have those numbers. I can't back that. But that's a theory of mine, you know, like the shows, there was probably a decline in 2007, 2008, 2009 to the point where why would we go on tour as a co-headliner we could headline by ourselves? It's the same people going to shows, you know? A aerobic fish and less than Jake package, you're probably not bringing any new people to a show rather than just doing it by yourself. At least that's the logic they probably had. So because of that, you know, like 10 years of that happening, I feel like that caused like this weird, like, 
less of communal support of each other and hyping each other because it only gets better. And like, I feel like Bad Time Records is the perfect proof of that. But not only that, but Asia Man Records back in the day, but also Counterintuitive Records. That's why I did the What Happened to Ska like live stream because like those are three labels that have a name for themselves. When you look at Counterintuitive Records in the emo world, they do the same thing. When a new band gets announced, all of the bands hype each other up and then people stop becoming fans of Prince Daddy and the Hyena specifically and Mom Jean specifically, but now you're just a fan of Counterintuitive Records. Whenever Counterintuitive launches a, a vinyl release, it sells out immediately. And you're starting to see that happen with Bad Time Records. It's like people are less fans of Kill Lincoln specifically or Bad Operations specifically. And it's like, you're a Bad Time Records band. I'm buying your shit. I'm, I'm automatically going to support you until proven otherwise. And I feel like I'm sure y'all can maybe confirm this. Asian Man Records was the same thing back in the day. If a ska band was put on an Asian Man Records, you knew that was a good ska band. You didn't have to think about it. Okay, cool. Another band to support. Yeah, I think the only difference between how Bad Time's operating now and how how Asian Man was operating is that eventually Mike Park started to branch out musically and also felt that he needed to put out like his friends' bands, maybe stuff that he wasn't 100% on board with. So I think one of the things I, I really hope to see with Bad Time is that Sosinski really just stays the course and keeps true to the vision of only putting out niche ska punk that that fits into the the kind of like guy that he's kind of chosen for himself because i mean as nice as it is for mike park to put out stuff like mike put out the narboots record which i thought was ridiculous at the time like it it didn't need to get a vinyl pressing since bob worked at asian man it got put out definitely hindsight that is is to our advantage right now in a lot of ways now that the momentum's there i don't think it's going to stop. I don't think it can stop at this point with Scott. There's just like, I'm seeing it. It's, it's popping up more out of my control. I can finally start taking a back seat, you know, <laughs> like yeah. for like three years straight, I was like everywhere. Like, please just support these bands. And now like someone was on my live stream and they were like, Oh snap, this is bad operation. This is, I love this band. And I was like, really? Like I thought everyone would know about this band because of me, but it's getting to the point where People are coming to me saying like, have you heard of Bad Operation? And I'm like, oh my God, you're in circulation, like outside of me. That's dope. Like, I don't think it can stop. But now we know the mistakes of what caused Scott to suffer for so long. We understand like, you know, the mistakes of so much that has happened. Also, Kill Lincoln was a band for a long time and made mistakes. And so did We're the Union, you know, like, and obviously like Adam, you've been playing music for a long time too. So like, as much as there are younger bands hopping on Bad Time, there's also so much wisdom and knowledge and also help. Like Mike Park has also, you know, offered help and aid and advice to Mike. So I feel like there's just so many resources and the fact that like there are older, you know, ska bands who are on board with Bad Time as well. And the more it gets hyped up and people talk about it and throw the name around. And now there's more labels starting. Phil from Scott Punk Daily just started a label. So at some point you're going to see more labels popping up and more buzz and hubbub around the name of ska and i feel like at that point as long as we know the mistakes not to make there's no reason why it would stop you know counterintuitive records hasn't stopped you know they're like five years in they're not that old but the momentum's only getting stronger for that label yeah i think what you just touched on there with more label starting is is really the next step that needs to happen bad time can only put out so much music and if mike's going to stay true to that vision other labels have to pop up because there's other great bands that exist outside of what mike's trying to do with bad time that need a home also everybody can't fit inside the same house yeah i think it's also very inspiring for 
a lot of people, you know, like there are people who are obviously hit me up being like, I want to start a band because I've been inspired by all the new ska. I'm somebody who's constantly inspired by new ska. Like Jer was a product of Bad Time Records. Jer was a project I wanted to start in 2015 and it's gone through so many iterations and it's still obviously always changing. But like, you know, it's an idea I had for a long time and I just shelved it because I was like, this is not a high priority but seeing what's happening on bat time and the the new bands and hearing all this stuff, like finally I need to get this thing going. Like it needs to happen. So it inspires me and I know it's inspiring other people and also other labels. It's going to inspire more labels to be formed and with more platforms for Scott bands to be signed to hopefully allowing resources that'll help more bands. Like over the years, you'll start to see more bands that deserve more light, get that light. And also, you know, I think it's very inspiring too the way Mike has been doing the collaborative releases. I feel like there's this weird attitude and it's not just ska. This is something I've noticed everywhere where music's a competition. You want to keep your elite circle and compete with everyone who's not in your circle, whether that's on tours or labels or bands or who's talking about who. And I'm like, why are we doing this? Like, why can't labels work together? I understand that we need to, you know, make money to get by, but the same way it's more powerful for every band on Bad Time Records to hype each other, it's equally as powerful for Bad Time Records to hype community records and community records to hype Bad Time Records. Because I've noticed a lot of people in Ska discovering community records and vice versa. The same thing with like the, the Joystick record with uh, Stomp Records, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's Stomp, is it? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So Stomp Records. I believe Stomp Records used to, they put out the Planet Smashers as well. You know, Jer could have been a counterintuitive records band, and Scott's Network technically is a counterintuitive records uh, project because uh, Jake from Counterintuitive handles that. So you're also seeing people in the emo scene be like, oh, look, a ska band on this label, but they don't care. You know, they see me as a counterintuitive band and they get into ska music because of that. So to me, that's just another pipeline, the emo to ska pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully, we stop seeing the competition, especially genre to genre, label to label band to band because the more we hype each other up the bigger it's just gonna get and eventually you know we might start seeing tides being made that we never even imagined like i can't imagine five years from now you know i mean back in the day you would even see you know bands would put out a split seven entry with each other and it would almost be a competition there too to like who would have the better side but then now you have the stuck lucky still live split which is amazing and like it stands alone as its own awesome release where both sides are, are equally weighted and and both bands are able to hype each other up that way let's talk about scott network a little bit it's been many years now i would like to know from you at this point what are some of the best received and worst received covers that you've done Ooh, so i don't think i've had a i don't think i've ever had a badly received cover i mean people obviously comment on my stuff like this suck i hate this the mix is bad Okay, the mix is bad. This bad mix is paying rent on two rooms in a house. So like, that's fine by me. You know, like, congratulations. You can hear the snare. At least that counts for something, you know? Where's your mix? Anyway, <laughs> I don't have a badly received cover that I can at least think about or remember. The best received is probably like, I want to say is that My Chemical Romance cover. Because that one, I feel like that's one of those covers that like, the type of people that like MCR hate ska. That's the impression that I get. For the amount of comments I've gotten, barely any of them are, are hating on it. And it was an older cover, so like it wasn't produced great, but people loved that cover. So I feel like that's probably one of my best received covers that I've done. You've had, you've had um, the artists that you're covering have commented or retweeted stuff you've done. What's the, um, 
what is like kind of maybe like your best story or one of your best couple best stories about of, of you know getting feedback or something from the artist that you covered one of my personal favorites which i don't think it's, it counts as feedback but halloween 2018 la dispute dressed up as a ska band and called themselves ska dispute and played a, a like i guess i don't know if it was a song as like one of the songs as a ska song which is like really funny because their stuff's just droney and he's just like yelling like sad shit so i think that's like really funny but someone commented um so when's the ska record of your music and then they tagged ska to network and they were like we're waiting on that cover and then i was like i i have to do it now so i did that cover like that day and then dropped it the next day and they shared it and they were so hype on it they love scott i feel like any of those like pup was another good one where pup did the free at last competition which is super smart i didn't listen to pup before that competition it's just one of those names that everyone said i needed to listen to them and i just never did i don't know why for whatever reason i just never did and then someone sent me the zine that they put out that was like it was the chords and lyrics but the song wasn't dropped yet and they challenged their fans to create a cover without ever hearing the song which is super interesting like thing they awarded five winners and i was one of the winners of that i didn't even know it was a competition i just covered it because i was like this seems cool and then i got an email from pup and they were like you won and i was like i won what <laughs> so that was really funny but yeah so and since then they're a band that you know that year they were like on good morning america playing live they were like the first punk band to get to that level in so long they were blowing up. They were on like late night talk shows. I was convinced. I was like, DIY Punk is going to come back in the mainstream. The pups, the band to do it. And then it didn't happen. They dropped Morbid Stuff and Morbid Stuff did chart on the billboard. So like, you know, it did well. But I just think like there's such a divide between you can have millions of people listen to your stuff and not be mainstream. And I feel like that's not the case in the 90s. I feel like in the 90s, once you're, you got to the millions of people listening, you were automatically springboarded into the mainstream. You know, like one of my favorite rappers is No Name and she has like millions of followers, but no one knows who No Name is. Like, unless you listen to her, most people are probably like, I've never heard of No Name, you know? So like the fact that there are so many bands who are doing so much, which to me is like, that's why I feed into the, I don't believe there's going to be a fourth wave. Unless Beyonce is like, I want to make a ska song. I don't think you're going to see a fourth wave of ska, you know? Cause like no band is going to get to that point in any genre ever, you know, like creating music that's been created already like the only way i can see something relatively coming close and this is like oh lord is like right place right time someone somehow mixing together rock steady with like the chill lo-fi emo rap and that's the only way i can see it happening because like rock steady is a form of ska that has not has not been big overall. Most people don't even know what the fuck Rocksteady is. Even people in Ska are still confused by what it is. But I think it's a chill vibe. I think it mixes really well together. Like I've been pioneering and messing around with Emo Steady, which um, I'm going to experiment a lot with the Jera record. And I think it's like those two styles go really well. It's like Rocksteady is chill enough to have that sad vibe, but it's still uplifting, makes you want to dance, super catchy. And I think it can be mixed together well with the emo rap. And that's the only way I can see Ska really taking a stance and becoming a next big thing. But like, to me, that's like, I don't know if that's just like the optimist in me wanting Ska to hit in a big way again. I think it's just like culture is too diverse for for that to happen again. Sorry, I derail, I derail a lot. Uh, we were talking about the feedback. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that what led to you doing morbid stuff then later yeah i mean morbid stuff was also one of the records that inspired me to do jare pup was a band that 
reignited my love for punk music. Like in 2016, 2017, punk was off the radar for me. I was listening to a lot of emo and like a lot of punk adjacent stuff, a lot of emo, a lot of pop punk, a lot of ska punk, but like punk in general, like just, I wasn't listening to it, but Pup, in my opinion, is a band that like, I call them indie punk. And I put Jeff Rosenstock in that same category where it sounds like punk, but there's something uniquely interesting about it. Like it has a kind of like a throwback 90s alternative vibe to it, but it still has that energy and drive and anger and passion that punk has. And a lot of bands have kind of been doing that sound. I feel like Jeff and Pup have popularized that sound a lot because they weren't the first bands to do it, but they're definitely the biggest bands to do that sound. And Spotify called indie punk a genre in their last wrapped season. So I think it's legit at this point. But yeah, so at some point I would love to do like a full Morbid Stuff cover record because I love that record so much. It's like was my favorite record of 2019 or one of my favorites of 2019. Yeah, me too. I listened to that album so many times and I specifically like Morbid Stuff, the song you covered. Um, Pup and Jeff are the the ones for me too. I'm, I'm right there with you. And I think another thing too is like Jeff Rosenstock is one of those people that has the potential. If Jeff really wanted to, he could be successful as a producer in the music industry. He could produce pop music that would chart. Everything Jeff writes, even like looking back to like ASOB when he was like 14, writing these songs that are better than most songs most bands will ever write in their life. To me, that's special. And I feel like Jeff has that ability, just obviously chooses to write punk music, despite his voice being not the most palatable. The punk, it's not the most tightly produced. Like it's on purpose, not super tight. You know, it's not super polished. You know, you wouldn't find a Goldfinger song sounding the way a Jeff song sounds. That's the beauty of it. It has that imperfections in it, but it's so raw and so good where the imperfections don't matter. You know, Jeff's voice doesn't matter. And like, he's confident in it too. That's another thing. He doesn't give a shit that his voice sounds bad. Quote unquote bad. I love it. He's one of my favorite singers. So like, When I say that, I mean, in the eyes of a normal normie, whatever you want to call it, a regular person, palatable by society standards, you know, like he doesn't care. And what he's saying is what's most important. I think that's another thing is like Jeff has made people listen to the lyrics rather than listen for the aesthetic. I feel like Jeff's artists were like, there is no aesthetic. It's not like hardcore brought you the the varsity font and looking cool and wearing the straight edge. Like that's where you create the jocks who like do it for the fad. But Jeff's music and Pup 2 is so like, you can't do that for the fad. So their fans are genuine, 100% fully through. To me, it's like every aspect of that has caused them to spring forward and grow so big, so uniquely. And that's why they're so successful. Jer, so TikTok's been kind of the social media platform you've been focusing on a lot lately. I'd really like to touch on a hot button issue really quickly before we wrap up here. Cereal and milk. Okay. <laughs> Have you heard this, Aaron? I saw a tweet about this. There's people out there that will put milk in before their cereal. Okay, so here's the thing. I personally don't care. So the reason I made that video, originally I was very, why would you put milk first? That's ridiculous. That was my original thoughts. Sure. Yeah, that's what I would think. The more I thought about it, the more sense it made. I'm not saying putting cereal first is wrong, but people are very hard, like milk before cereal is absolute madness. Most people's argument is it splashes. But honestly, it's like, how hard are you throwing your cereal in the bowl (laughs) for the milk to really splash like that? Because like, I would always pour a big ass bowl of cereal, 
I eat a lot. So like a bowl of cereal is not going to fill me up. I need like five bowls of cereal. Like I go through a box a day type thing when I eat. That's why I just don't buy cereal. I'm like, this is like, it's too much for me. But I think it's like, I will pour the cereal and then I'll pour the milk. I'll eat the cereal. Then I'll have a bunch of milk left over. So I'm like, I'm still hungry and I'll add more cereal and it's never splashed. So I was like, the biggest argument is debunked. And so I made that video. I was like, y'all's biggest argument against milk and cereal. I guarantee you, you've done it and you've never realized it, but you've poured cereal into milk. And most of the comments were like, you are absolutely right. I have done this before. You're right. Oh my God, I'm rethinking it. And I'm like, when you think about it, that second bowl you get a much better ratio. It's like the ratio is much more even when you pour the cereal into the milk. And then typically you don't do it a third time unless you're chaotic like me and you start adding more milk to the cereal because you're still hungry. I just eat a lot. That was the argument I made. But of course, team cereal was very like, no, this is wrong. This is chaotic. And then people were commenting like, it's definitely cereal before milk. But then like when I'm pouring my milk, it's always about to overflow. And I'm like, see, if you put the milk first and then the cereal, you wouldn't have had that problem. You're further proving that, I don't know, the more people talk about it, the more I'm like, milk first is clearing up a lot of issues. I kind of made that as just a joke. It was half just a joke. And then half, like, I know people will will comment and that will boost me in the algorithm. They can argue all they want, but they're just boosting all of my stuff into the algorithm. I don't really care that badly, you know, like. My favorite part of it was how you started it with, I know no one has asked, but I'm a person on the internet. And so now you must listen to what I have to say. Oh my God, yeah. I mean, you see it all the time, Adam. Like, people will just comment the most random stuff. Like, this mix sounds bad. Great. Thanks for your opinion. The ones that really drive me crazy for you are, how do I play a trumpet? Oh my God, yeah. Like, really? You just expect Jared to teach you the whole thing and uh, comment. Cool. I think a lot of people want to just talk and they don't know what to say. I get that. I mean, they just try to think of something. I've never been one to like want to talk to people if like there's nothing to say. Like I met Tyler, the creator once and I was like, can I get a picture? And he was like, yeah. And then I took the picture and I was like, I have zero things to say to you. So I'm just going to leave you alone. And I didn't, I didn't say that, but I was like, all right, cool, thanks. And he was like, that's what's up. And I think he said that because he was like, you're not going to punish me for no reason. Because the way I approached it, I was like, I just approached asking for a picture, which I know is kind of annoying, especially if you're like famous. I bet that happens all the time. But I feel like the follow-up is always people talking. And I'm just like, I have literally nothing to say to you. I honestly don't even listen to your music that much. I like your music, but I don't listen to that much. So I'm not going to like force a conversation out of nowhere So I'm just going to leave you alone. You know, for me, it's like, if I don't have anything to say, I'm not going to try to come up with something. But I feel like people try to come up with something a lot of the time. So I get that. I'm accessible. I stream like every day. You know, if you want to talk to me, you can think of something and something will come up. I'm also like a human who only has so much available emotional capacity. When you're meeting so many people, like I started feeling it in 2019 and early 2020, where I was like, There are generations of people who have lived in societies and I've met more people this year than all of those people combined have met in their lifetimes, you know, like, and that's something that we're the first generations to experience meeting this many people like ever. We're evolutionarily not designed to talk to thousands of people in our lifetime, but like it's happening. There's definitely that factor to it that I think people don't realize or think about and Part of me knows that's like the people who are doing the quote unquote punishing. Like, I don't think they realize the magnitude of people that musicians or content creators or actors or celebrities or whoever, whatever you want to talk about have to deal with or talk to, you know? Yeah, I, I definitely relate to that. I feel like there's so many times I've met people over the years and they've come back into my life and I realize that 
oh yeah, this is the same person that I met five, 10, 15 years ago. That happened with um, Chris from Ska Punk International. Nice. He's popped up so many different times in my life. And then I'm like, oh, right, <laughs> it's Chris. I have the unique experience of having a birthmark on my face. So that means that people <laughs> that I met in kindergarten recognize me <laughs> and I don't recognize them. Okay, one time I was in my 20s and I was at a bar in Gilroy, the town I grew up in. Some dude at the bar, he's just like, dude, we went to kindergarten together. And I was like, I don't, I don't know who you are. <laughs> had that moment too where he's just like wants to talk to me. What have you been up to? <laughs> I was like, where do we begin this conversation? I don't know where. We can. That's so funny. Like, I kind of have like a semi-similar situation where, I mean, it's less of a birthmark and more of like, there's not that many black people at shows a lot of the times. So like, people will like come up to me and be like, oh yeah, like Jeremy or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, oh yeah, white guy who's like 5'8 with brown scruffy hair named Brandon, Jake. You know, like I'm like, oh Yeah. I'm very good at remembering situations, but not names. So sometimes people will be like, you don't remember me? Remember this show? And I'm like, oh yeah, that happened. And then you fell off this thing. And then this car drove by. And and it's like, I don't have photographic memory, but I'm very good at remembering like events. So people are like, okay, yeah, you do remember me. But I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just not going to remember your name. Because like, you're the 14th Brandon I met at this show. Yeah. I like that Brandon's the name. <laughs> it was the first one that came to mind. Yeah, sorry to Brandon and We're the Union. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Scum. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarnes.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Scum podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you'd like to pre-order my book, In Defense of Scum, go to clashbooks.com. It releases on May 4th, 2021. On that note, we leave you by saying, Scum now more than ever. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.